In this episode, I talk with Dr. Dylan Mahoney, a professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida. In this conversation, we talk about his book, The Art of Connection, Risk, Mobility, and the Crafting of Transparency in Coastal Kenya. This book deals with the new generation of art dealers in Kenya, and we also discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on the economy and other related topics in economic anthropology. We talk about some of his current research dealing with refugee resettlement in Tampa, Florida, and the conversation picks up talking about his planned field school in Kenya that has been postponed due to COVID-19. Like, what was the... So, like, I guess what, what has your overall experience been right now? Because I know everything's sort of hectic up in the air. You mentioned all these Zoom meetings, which is like the new life right now. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I was working, I, you know, I've worked in Kenya for a long time and finished up the first project and have been starting a new project. And that was going to come together ideally in this field school that I spent much of last year setting up. And the field school was going to be running just starting right now. Uh, So I spent a lot of time even through early. uh, So in January, you know, out there recruiting students to go to Kenya in in May. And um, I was actually trying to move away from working with refugees. I'd been also working with Swahili speaking refugees here in, in the Tampa Bay area. And so I even had, you know, a student or a couple students who were going to be working somewhat on refugee related projects this this coming year and i yeah these are either under i have like a i had both grad students but then i had a i have an undergrad uh, honors thesis for a student who wanted to do something refugee related and you know in previous years i kind of could have said well we're doing this project here you can have this piece of it and i was like well no i want to get back to kenya you know (laughs) so Mm -hmm. All of that suddenly changed and it took you know sort of this realization to sit down and realize all right well i'm not going to be going back to kenya anytime soon kenya is actually in complete lockdown and, and they have their own stuff going on obviously and so right yeah so, and but then it was like well there's all of this money on the table uh you get we're getting like non-stop emails about new grants that have to do with everything covid19 related wow so it was like, well, you know, at the same time, actually, what really started it all for for me with the new project was, and I know you initially asked about the old, the field school, but was I, I started doing, and I've, I've for a long time done a lot of the Swahili language translation for people at the Department of Health and Department of Children and Families. And yeah. they started coming to me with all the new COVID-19 material. And um, so I was doing a lot of that translation for them. And then I was being contacted by some folks that work with refugees up in New York, New Jersey, and they were doing uh, outreach questionnaires and they were calling up all their clients, but nobody here was really doing that. And some of that has to do with budget cuts. It's complicated, but, you know, families here should have been, at, you know, so all of a sudden I have all these questions about, you know, populations in Tampa that I'd been working with in the past. Yeah. And a lot of that's not just about COVID-19. It's also about do they know how to you know, deal with unemployment and the eviction process? And I mean, all of the related issues, right? A lot of the economic stuff. Um, so we started actually then, you know, throwing all of our resources together. And there's, a, there's quite a few of us, the usual suspects in the anthropology department with, with mm-hmm. some, some public health folks and other folks around. So, so we've got a good project. The, um, the field school was going to be, 
you know, and again, it's just hard to, I have calls I have to make to some of my collaborators on the Kenyan side for the field school, but, you know, we're all kind of so distracted right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause they're all working on other projects as well. And those projects all just got screwed up. So um, my, one of my main collaborators, Nancy Mwinde is currently a postdoc in um, Vancouver. I mean, yeah. she's, she's Kenyan, but so she was supposed to be going back to Kenya in March to do some work in our site. And then she was going to be back in Vancouver and then back in Kenya for the field school in May. And actually in January, she was saying things like, I'm sorry, Nancy, if you watch this ever, but she was saying, (laughs) but she was saying, um, you know, uh, it's going to be tough to get there in May. I have to be there, you know, all of March and then be back in Vancouver and then back to Kenya. Um, and everybody, I mean, her March trip got canceled. I mean, just everything got canceled. And um, it was it was really rough in some ways for the students who obviously had committed, except that, you know, it wasn't just them. It was all field schools. And um, it was also going to be our first year. We were having a lot of trouble just getting enrollment. Um, in mm-hmm. some ways, we'll get more time to recruit, except I'm also, you know, so right now the plan is to run the field school again in 2021. Okay. But we are, it's hard to even, you know, have any vision for what anything's going to look like next summer. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There's Uh, so much in the air. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and on, on this side and on the Kenyan side, and then, you know, you're talking about recruiting students to commit six months ahead of time Mm -hmm. for a very expensive field school on the other side of the world. I don't know if we'll have any chance of, of recruiting for next summer. So, you know, it, it may actually be the kind of thing where we say, let's just put it on hold for a year or two. What it was, though, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a bigger project. It's an environmental anthropology project. Uh, very cool project that, you know, I, I hope will continue to, to, you know, push along. Um, and this is very much collaborative with a bunch of folks on the Kenyan side. But it's a national park that, that borders on a, an area that is... Uh, not really sustainable right now with the kind of farming that they're doing and they don't have access to the better land that's in the park. And so we're looking at a lot of understandings of environmental change. And so we're looking at that from the social side, but also doing some environmental, um, you know, some more biological data collection in the park to look at okay. what has actually been happening with environmental change, the relationship between people and the environment. Um, ties in with a lot of Anthropocene issues, but from a field school perspective, it's really cool because um, it is visually kind of in your classic uh, East Africa. It's surrounded by national parks. It's, you know, the savannah. Yeah. Um, having yeah. spent a lot of time there, it's not real romantic. But anyway, it's, you know, <laughs> you know it's that kind of thing. And then um, they'll also be doing a lot of uh, biodiversity surveys in the park, which helps out with sort of these long-term surveys that have been going on in terms of just mapping biodiversity and biodiversity change in the park. Um, mm-hmm. But then we'll also be doing household surveys outside of the park. So students who go along, it's really an interdisciplinary field school. It's not just anthropology. Um, I would say it's, you know, it is fundamentally anthropology. It is anthropology in every way. Yeah. Um, yet I think, you know, a lot of the students who were interested in it were coming from environmental policy and they were coming from geosciences and, those kinds of uh, environmental planning. I mean, it's if, if you're if you want to do environmental planning or environmental policy. I mean, that's this is it. I mean, this would be mm. 
an amazing opportunity to see exactly what's happening because we'll be we'll be working on those i mean really policy issues um yeah trying to figure out and and we have a voice so my partners too i'll just add the partners are um from the national museum of kenya also from kenya wildlife and kenya forestry and so they are uh they're economically all disempowered Mm -hmm. but they are um they still are kenyan government and they're not what do you mean by that what do you mean by like disempowered um so one of the issues all over the world and um including in the u.s but i mean you know so when when you have money going towards conservation though right um or anything environmental becomes involved or sustainability gets involved. There are certain people who have the power to define what that means, you know? So, um, you have the NIMBY phenomenon of, you know, not in my backyard where, you know, things get put in, you know, poorer people's yards. But in the case of Kenya, I mean, it's this kind of thing where the scientists, the Kenyan scientists, and I mean, not just the Kenyan scientists, um, you know, academics, uh, have a pretty good idea of what's happening in terms of environmental change and, and these sorts mm-hmm. of things, climate change. But the tourism industry and the conservation industry, and I'll just sort of broadly say the conservation industry, but that's very, that's a big industry. But there's so much private money that is like powerful money, like that has, mm. you know, in some ways it has like, you know, I just want to be able to hunt and shoot a couple lions every year, money attached mm-hmm. to it. But then it's also like, know corporate money and you know real some of it's you know big write-off money so there's in in our field site we had um the building of an electric fence which has been you know it's been debated how successful it's been Mm -hmm. um there wasn't a lot of community involvement in the planning or building of the fence uh and the fence from what i understand was funded by leonardo dicaprio (laughs) right yeah that whole thing you have those kinds of cases though where you know, if, if they can bring in a couple million bucks real easy by just, you know, showing some photos or whatever, giving a trip to a Hollywood celebrity mm-hmm. and it's a kind of field site. And that's, that's the thing. It's if it was a field site that was a little less sort of romantic in certain ways, it may not attract the same conservation money. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of international pressure against the local communities in this place, I think more so than you find in a lot of other places, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they're really blamed. I mean, you have a lot of people who will say, you know, it's, it's usually not the local community, but in this case, you know, they're just a problem. <laughs> and it's like, right. what the hell? And, and there's a reason <laughs> for that. And there's actually deep historical ethnic reasons for that in terms of like, you know, the ethnic group in question. Um, there's two big ethnic groups in question, the Maasai and the Kamba, and they've been, They've been, at least in this case, in the conservation situation, discursively constructed as opposites where, you know, the Maasai are communal and natural conservationists. And you'll actually see mm-hmm. that in some of the literature, whereas the Kamba are individualistic and anti-communal and anti-environment. And, you know, they just want to make profit. And so they'll do anything they can. You know, so they represent, you know, they'll, you know they've actually constructed in their construction of humans these mm variations of africans the good africans africans and it Uh, sounds like the bad africans are like western almost like now they're in this like absolutely they're more westernized yeah Yeah. um they become more like us and so there's this self-deprecating aspect of it yeah yeah that's interesting um and like 
I've worked, yeah. I've worked with the Kamba community for all of my time in Kenya. And mm-hmm. I love, I love Kamba people. They're, they're basically country bumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I don't agree with most of the stereotypes that are out yeah. there. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause like you're also talking about multiple interests, right? So you have the people who want to like, I guess, shoot lions and then, you know, oh. whatever that means. And, but what about the other people? I guess like the people who aren't necessarily getting that like material or maybe even like the thrill of it. Like you talked about tax write-offs and Leonardo DiCaprio. I guess like yeah, what are they getting out of it? Well, there was one and it really struck me. I, there was a blog post started by a young British guy um, and it was one of these just amazing. I wish I had screenshot it because I don't think it's up anymore. This was probably four, five or six years ago. And it was about his trip to Kenya and he's going down the highway from Nairobi to Mombasa and he looks and he's all this smoke and he gets out of his car. We have to pull over and he starts fighting the wildfires and he gets personally invested in fighting wildfires and he's raising all these money to stop the wildfires. And, you know, it's this very interesting, um, you know, they even bring in, you know, climate change and too many people, not enough resources. And the next thing you know, you're having these horrible things. Um, and what's interesting is that actually there's a lot of research. I mean, people start these fires. These are, these are human, these are human controlled fires that are you know done every year. Um, now they're highly debated, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but there's v- almost no open understanding to the idea of anthropogenic fire or that right. this is something that, has been done, you know, throughout history and continues to be done. And people of the Kamba and Maasai community will argue to you, you know, the 20 plus reasons why they need to do this every year, despite being, you know, it being illegal. So then, you know, you get, you get a tourist who knows no idea of what's going on and they'll start a whole movement, you know, against the wildfires in Eastern Kenya. And then they find out that people are involved in starting these fires and, oh my gosh, it's just, What's wrong with these people? Yeah. So it's a fascinating, it, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, neat, complicated situation. And um, I think that it would be good to throw the students. It's a great situation to throw students into. In this <laughs> when I first studied abroad in Kenya, that's how I first got involved in Kenya. Um, it was at a time on the coast of Kenya and I studied on the coast of Kenya. So a very different place, but um, it was at a time of, um, a lot of sort of ethno, but also religious tension, uh, you know, sort of not really Muslim Christian tension, but more just like Muslims in Kenya feeling marginalized from the, the broader, you know, nation. And then you get the war on terror era here happening mm-hmm. as well. And the Kenyan government's very aligned with the U.S. government. So there were a lot of, you know, human rights violations against Muslims in Kenya. So it was interesting because, you know, I, I was sort of thrown into this study abroad program in 2001, just before 9-11, um, mm-hmm. which was great because it was like before actually all that, you know, everything got really dramatic. But you could see all of these underlying tensions. And it was about, you know, who, what is a Swahili person? What is Swahili culture? How is it redefining itself in 2001, you know, mm. uh, within the Kenyan nation, but within the broader global politics and what does it mean to be Swahili? Yada yada yada. And and it was w- w- the reason I compare it to that is that the program designers were really smart when they ran the program by just throwing us in as students mm-hmm. and saying, "You guys figure this out." <laughs> and because anybody who tells you something about it is has some bias or some right. side. 
Yeah, they're tainting you already. So like it's preventing you from just sort of coming in and organically seeing working through it. Yeah. I mean, and there's a, there's a real beauty to that. And that's what I kind of want to do with the students in this case. Cause I think the students will end up themselves taking very different sides because mm-hmm. it's very complicated and, and yeah. it'll depend on where they're coming from, their backgrounds and they'll uh, all learn from that. So I think it'll be one day <laughs> we'll run that field school. Yeah. I just hope that study abroad and that field schools in general come back one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, uh, like what kinds of methods did you intend or do you intend on like teaching them and using because like you said each student will come and have maybe a different a different position or take a different interest in what they are exactly looking at but i guess like what yeah. what philosophy is underpinning the field school for you um you know that's a good question the philosophy i think fundamentally is that anthropology is interdisciplinary and that you need to be a smart on your feet cross-disciplinary thinking person to make it in any applied field Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we're gonna we're gonna help you do that as opposed to handicapping you by saying you have to do it one way so what we do is there's always the method of participant observation and just throwing them in there i mean they're studying abroad so we have a lot of just basic excursions and all the staff but me so the other co-directors and all the other staff are kenyans um Mm -hmm. and so they'll be um They'll be doing, you know, I mean, just, just being there itself, you know, is, is a methodological component. I want them to think about that. But then in terms of the, you know, the more hardcore methods, we actually start really quickly with trips into the park um, where they're learning how to do transects and they're learning how to grid areas to do biodiversity surveys. Um, and they get both vegetation and um, wildlife. And we do that because it's the kind of thing you can do really quickly, actually. Um, yeah. you, know, you, can, you can teach them how to do it in like a day take them out into the park and have them actually do it the next day. And then what's important about that from my perspective, methodologically is that they learn how to use the data. So they, they, they understand why they collected data that way, how it compares to a previous data set and then how they can look at that, you know, to, you know, ask new questions. Now that's the sort of quantitative part of it. And that's actually not my, that's not my part. (laughs) And there are some folks, uh, Peter Fundy and Stan Kivai from, the National Museum are going to be teaching that. And they've taught, they're, uh, they're both primatologists. Huh. So they, they do really cool. They do a lot of like regular population surveys with primates. And so they yeah. use a lot in doing um, primate habitat surveys for like uh, huh. colobus and for baboons and things like that. But, yeah. Um, now I will say, I mean, we, we will, there are a fair number of baboons where, where we'll be, um, it is an ornithologist hotspot. So there's a lot of birds, the biodiversity hotspot for birds. Birds are one of the big things that students, so students will actually be out there, you know, with, mm-hmm. with these really cool, the Kenya wildlife people who are amazing. Cause they'll tell you, they'll say, look, that's, and they'll tell you it in English, Swahili and Latin, you know, and they, <laughs> they know every, uh, all these species. It's really, really cool. They're just walking, you know, knowledge fountains. Wow. Um, students will get a really good experience. Um, on the other side of it, then we have all of these community meetings, basically. So we'll have a lot of community meetings and, you know, somewhat those are going to be like focus group interviews, but, and then we're going to have students do household interviews that are facilitated by our community partners, but where we'll actually have them then doing questionnaires and, you know, they'll, they'll be learning essentially the, the tension between qualitative and quantitative research. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want students to eventually be going out and hanging out and talking to people, you know, the right. deep the deep hanging out 
Um, and, you know, once they've been in the park and they've seen the biodiversity situation, they've talked to people, understand more of like their points of view. I think that's where they can really get into it. And they'll be, they'll be fun people because everybody's going to see an American student and say, hey, hmm. <laughs> come, come with me, which can be yeah. dangerous, you know, from my position <laughs> as a supervisor. But yeah, we're actually, this is a great place where we'll be, people are super nice, super friendly. Um, and I think it'd be, it'll be a good experience for the students. So, and, and, you know, again, obviously I think, I think the students will walk away with real genuine ideas and collaborations. I think that they'll meet a lot of folks who will, who they'll start things with. And, uh, you know, I think there's some options if, if people are interested in biogas, there's a huge potential for biogas. I mean, just. Yeah, so many different uh, different routes, but at the same time, I could talk about that forever, and <laughs> I still won't be back in Kenya probably until at least next year. So, right, yeah, and you mentioned the issue of I guess like safety, right? Like whenever people think about like research, yeah. especially in other countries, especially anthropological research, that tends to get like you know labeled under this like you know like almost doing this work with cultures that are sort of seen as exotic you know, exoticized for all kinds of reasons like the issue of safety yeah. is also there like I, I don't know if you'd like to weigh in on maybe what students can expect there but even like your own experiences in terms of like uh experiences in the field boy yeah uh, <laughs> um you know the caveat to all of this is with COVID-19, you know, things are so mm -hmm. different. And I personally, I just wouldn't travel at the moment, obviously, just not only right. because it's impossible due to policies, but, um, you know, I have a friend in Mombasa and I just asked him to see if the National Archive in Nairobi was open. And, mm -hmm. you know, he said, he said, the city's on lockdown. The archive is open. I could try to get up there for you. <laughs> I was like, uh, no, don't even. Not don't, worth it. Not worth yeah. it. You know, so. You know, that's one of my Kenyan, you know, friends with connections. And now um, moving forward, it's obviously going to be an evolving situation. I think that's going to be really what's interesting is how it'll play out over the next couple of years in terms of people moving and risk and security. Now then, you know, you've got the, um, the, the regular situation. Uh, now, USF takes risk, of course, extremely seriously. It's the reason nobody's traveling and they, <laughs> they shut down international travel before the U S government did, you know, all yeah. that, but you know, they have and all that. Really, um, yeah. And you know, I, I tend to think of it as being about liability and I got a lot of respect. I mean, I think there's still something good about the fact that USF is a state institution mm -hmm. and they have a wonderful set of people on their risk team. I'm not just trying to, um, garner favor with them because they do, you know, hold the future of some of my programs in their hands. But, um, you know, they have really good people who really, I think, do care. And it's important to sit down and talk to who those people are. They're not just lawyers who are carried about, who care about liability. Um, hmm. At the same time, you know, what they care about are, are things that I cared about. And when you're, when you're starting a program in Kenya or anywhere like that, actually, this is advice for anybody listening. Uh, the first person you should meet with is the risk, risk person. First person I met with. Everybody I talked to after that said, oh my gosh, this program sounds great, but have you talked to the risk people? And mm -hmm. I said, 
oh yes, I have a two thumbs up from them. And as soon as, I mean, then it's just all, you know, all gears forward. Um, and I, so I said, and I was very, very nervous about that meeting actually. And I shouldn't have been. Um, but the thing is I already, I've, I've run field schools in Kenya before I did that, uh, back in the, uh, earlier two thousands and, uh, when I was actually a grad student and, um, Oh, it's a while ago, but you know, I, I've, I've been here before and I know exactly what I need to be worried about as a person on the ground responsible for these kids. Right. And I know the crap that they'll pull <laughs> and I know exactly, I mean, I've studied abroad there, but I've also taken students there. I've advised a lot of study abroad students and, you know, it's a really careful balance between giving them enough independent, I mean, they're adults. Um, they could easily travel there on their own as tourists and getting a lot more trouble um and you know you need to to make sure that they are learning as much as they can um and obviously staying safe and and you know I, my my talks with the risk people have always been great because i care just as much about you know at the same time you know they have a great healthcare program and system they were able to tell me exactly which clinics to take students to if anything happened um mm -hmm. they have great insurance uh i once had to evacuate a student from an island off the coast of Kenya who had an appendicitis and wow. flying doctors to come in. And so because I had that happen in 2007, I was like, so we need to have flying doctors. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> not settling for anything less. And that's, but the risk people hear that and they say, awesome. Yes. You know, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, let's have it. So um, otherwise it's not that remote a location. It's, it's close to really good healthcare. It's between two really huge cities. It's, um, you know, it's next to a national park, but it's a tourist destination. Um, it's, it's very poor and yet there's very little crime. It's one of those wonderful parts of the world. Um, anthropologists sometimes find themselves that are, you know, just very poor, but you know, have very, very little crime. So, right. uh, I think that we're going to be, uh, we'll be in a, we'll be in a good place. And, you know, it's going to be a lot of orientation. That's what I handle, a lot of orientation and introduction for students. And yeah, it would be cool. Now, yeah, that sounds awesome. when you when you mentioned risk and liability, these are things we should be talking about right now because of <laughs> happening coronavirus. And right. what's amazing to me is that with the privatization of, and it's related to privatization, but with, with the privatization of, of risk management mm -hmm. so basically governments aren't responsible for risk management right you have governments that just say well it's up to you mm -hmm. um you know you have these people now who are you know so you have the risk management corporations so the pharmaceutical corporations and the healthcare and the uh financial advisors all of wall street right it's all risk management yeah. And they not only run the show, but it's just amazing at this point because they've made this calculation with the reopening of our economy, right? It's yeah. all based on, well, what's the risk of how many people dying who aren't among us, <laughs> right? Huh. Uh, versus some of us dying, but we'll be able to get health care because we're rich and you right. know, we'll be able to afford good enough health care. And, you know, if you have... A mansion with a swimming pool or a, you don't have to have a mansion with a swimming pool. If you got, if you got a crappy little house with a really nice swimming pool, I mean, mm -hmm. quarantine's great, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just think that the, um, the, uh, 
the amazing extent to which all risk and not just the risk of getting coronavirus, but like, you know, the risk yeah. of being kicked out of your house and the risk of everything is just being passed, just all being passed off right now. It's fascinating. Yeah. And the people controlling all this discussion are the people with the money. And that's actually the risk management industry. Cause they're just, you know, very, they don't want to deal with those other people. They yeah. make up the way it is. So. It is. And you saying that makes me think of something else in terms of like, I guess recently, I know this is like a sharp turn. Our conversation is taken from what, where it started, but <laughs> in California, you know, like three months, it, it's been extended the the quarantining for, uh-huh. for citizens in California for three months. And people are upset about that. In terms of risk, it's like, it seems like the only reason that's happening is because, you know, if like a lot of states aren't doing that and President Trump isn't doing that because if we, if it's mandated that people have to stay in, then the government has to like take responsibility for that. Right. It's almost like you take your risk into your own hands. It's like exactly what you're talking about. Like it's not up to us. You take it. You're able to go places. You can start working again. And Hey, like we're we're giving you freedom. We're giving you the freedom. Anybody taking care of you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's Um, exactly it. Yeah. But, you know, and that's and that's exactly the reason we're going to see, you know, I just I think earlier this week they said in rural parts of America and I think it's like Kentucky, Wisconsin, Michigan, there's like a 2000 percent increase in rural areas. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. those are the Trump supporters out there, too. And, and you know, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see what happens. It's going to be there's going to be so many waves, I think, um, in different regions. And, you know, that's how these things work. But. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll, that's what we say as anthropologists. It'll be, <laughs> it will be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess the other thing is like, there's so many factors involved, just like in anthropology, like health, but then economics, but then politics. It's just all sort of muddled together. And I guess what I'm thinking is, you mentioned earlier in terms of the refugees here in Tampa, like what's been their experiences going through all this? Because people, like regular citizens, like regular citizens who are who might have a stable job, even though a lot don't, and have health care, maybe have benefits, maybe they're okay right now, but I can only imagine the like extent to that, like how precarious their lives must be right now. Yeah, I think historically the fundamental impact of COVID-19 is and will be the exposure of all of the inequalities. Mm-hmm. And right. it's because the system's been allowed to run on, you know, the edge of a, the, the head of a needle in terms of the risk. And yeah. it's because maximize profit, you can maximize profit. And now it's like, there was no, no, you know, you hear all these people saying, well, we didn't expect this to happen. You know, you yeah. know, they say that every two years when there's a massive hurricane too. And then they say, where's the bailout? You know, where's, where's mm-hmm. the, the insurance? And it, yeah, at a certain point, the responsibility needs to be taken, but not by individual people but by the corporations yeah the people with money and the developers and the investors and the planners but um in any case but i think yeah fundamentally you know what we're seeing among congolese refugees but also other refugees and i'm excited to say actually we're we're including syrians and um hopefully beginning next week so we will be at least initially looking at congolese and syrian refugees here in in tampa but um it's a lot of the same as what you're seeing in other, you know, it's just a little worse, you know, it's because you have a community that already had um, issues with housing. Um, now it's going to get worse. 
you already had, you know, low employment, struggling with employment, right? Then people right. can't get employed. Then they try to go on unemployment and they're highly likely to make a mistake in doing that and not get unemployment, which really doesn't matter at all because this is Florida. Wow. So nobody, nobody's getting unemployment anyway, including my yeah. partner, who's, she's an accountant for Hyatt, uh, about six weeks on furlough, no unemployment. Wow. But that's that's just Florida. Um, you know, so all so so you know, you have a population of refugees. All of their services were just cut through budget cuts. Mm. They just lost their jobs. Um, they're gonna be evicted as soon as the landlord legally can evict them. Wow. Uh, they were brought here as, you know, guests of the US government. <laughs> mm. There's very little support. So we're doing um, you know, so many layers of uh there's a lot of it is just connecting people to the to who can help so there's you know department of health department of children and families there are people out there that are struggling to you know try to help families out a lot of people dealing with unemployment problems or you know food stamp issues right now it helps a lot to just go straight to the department of children and families sometimes they can yeah. they can help out um the other thing we're really just trying to do though is and i i I hesitate to say this, we're kind of doing what yeah. the resettlement services should be doing, but yeah. don't have the capacity to do, which is just to reach out to all the families and say, are you doing okay? Wow. Um, you know, and those are the kind of things that, that just kind of need to be done. So a, a big part of what we're doing is kind of like public health education. I, I somewhat hesitate to say that because I don't want to take the responsibility maybe in some ways for that. <laughs> um, yeah. But um we, we are going to, I think, at some point produce some videos in Arabic and Swahili that can just be viewed by people just to give them an idea of what's going on. Um, there, it, it's kind of amazing. We've been looking around for Swahili language videos about COVID-19 and what is out there. It's, you know, the quality is just not good. Mm. And um, it's a it's a high need language right now. And so, you know, there's a lot that we can do. And, you know, I, I think as anthropologists in this environment, we've got to be flexible just to try to do what we can but yeah no it's so true i don't know if you could speak on like the projects that you're referring to in terms of the ones here in tampa where you have a lot of people and the anthropology department involved i guess how did that get started and all sure that? um well uh dr bayer in the anthropology department she had worked with immigrant communities for a long time started working with refugees i think maybe five or ten years ago with the burmese community um, working closely with the Tampa Bay Refugee Task Force and the Tampa Bay Gardens, which is a refugee garden. There's uh, Global Community Church, um, Caribe, which is an ESL program for refugees, um, Lutheran Services and Coptic Charities. So there's there's a lot of players that are involved in refugee resettlement. But then every couple of years, you have a different population that comes through. And so, uh, you know, there was a wave of Burmese and then... Uh, Excuse me. Um, I guess around 2014, 15, you started to see a big uptick in um, refugees from the Congo Wars, which is the term that we're using because there's a lot of debate over, you know, are you Congolese or are you Rwandan? A lot of the people that we're talking about were born in camps that are in Tanzania or Kenya or Uganda. And so it's a very complicated situation and it, all the problems of wow. nationalism and colonialism. Sure. So. Um, so this is a population, it's the biggest population being resettled in the U.S. through UNHCR um, internationally. So that doesn't include asylees, but um, 
it has taken over, especially since the Muslim ban, uh, so to speak, from Syrians and from you know Muslim populations of refugees coming into the U.S. And again, it doesn't really include Latin Americans or asylees, but um, it is still the biggest population formally through ORR being resettled. So I'm a fluent Swahili speaker. I love dialects of Swahili. I have uh, learned dialects and taught Swahili and uh, advised the Swahili Students Organization. It's a really cool language. So. Mm. Uh, when all of this started, my colleague, Dr. Bayer said, can you help me with the language side of the project? We want to do a diet nutrition project with uh, Congolese refugees. And so we jumped into that in 2017. Big, big team of students. Um, a lot of students from the Swahili Students Organization, others even just in our department. Um, and then uh, we got into things like school bullying and access to benefits um, and the project really snowballed and partially it was the timing. Um, you had budget cuts. You also had anti-refugee sentiment. Um, and then you had uh, a population mm -hmm. coming in. Um, the Congolese population, it has a lot of the same issues as other communities. It's like it, but it has all of them. So, mm -hmm. you know, very low levels of English, very low uh, experience of cities, you know, very low. Uh, rate of people who have ever had a job or had to pay rent or even lived in a house or had windows yeah. or had a roof. Mm. I mean, it's like, so um, cleaning. I mean, so there's a lot of just basic, basic things. And um, education became just a, a huge issue. A lot of people have never been to school, um, very, very limited schooling. So you have all of that. It's just, it's just sort of a perfect storm. Um, so we've been working with that community at the same time they've done extremely well. Um, there have been very few families coming recently compared to the was in 2015 and 16. So a lot of those earlier families have become kind of like anchor families. Uh, the other advantage we have is a lot of the refugees that are relocated here are the people who are, uh, you know, upstanding members of the community or community organizers or translators back in Africa. Um, and so because we have a couple of those folks, they have emerged as community leaders and we work closely with them. And so that's been, it's, but it's just an ongoing project and it's really fun. Yeah. Actually, I will say we have a, we have a YouTube channel where we make some YouTube videos and we really want to get that going again, um, yeah. with the COVID-19 stuff, if we create some videos and I think we're at the point where we tried, we tried the YouTube, you know, video production project with the, with the refugee youth couple years ago and i think yeah. there there was a lot of learning curve when it came to just learning the technology mm -hmm. and so a lot of the work fell back on me and because i'm trying to do participatory media that doesn't really make it it's not really participatory if i'm doing all that you know stuff. yeah um yeah, you know they, they were giving me a lot of feedback and they were doing a lot of the work but in the end you know what i need to be able to do um and i think i'm about at that point is to identify some some people in the community and just give them laptops Right. You know, show them all the software, get them set up with really good, you know, technology, get them access mm -hmm. to our department media lab um, yeah. and just let them go. And and I think that, you know, that's all you need to do. So yeah. when, I was, when I was like in my early 20s, if you had just given me the technology we have today, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I would have been going crazy out there making movies. And stuff, yeah. So. Anyway. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I'll I'll link all of your stuff in the description for this uh, hmm. for this podcast. Sure. Um, just so if anyone's interested, you know, you can check that out. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, and we're still doing. We're doing a lot of work down here. I'm trying to expand it. Actually, we're trying to get to other cities in the U.S. We know that Tampa is really unique in terms of what we're dealing with here. Um, we also lose a lot of families who leave Tampa because it's too expensive. So, and mm-hmm. I mean, in the end, in the end, the families that can, af- you know, can stay in Tampa are the ones that can afford to stay in Tampa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have a little more advantage, let's say, than some of the other refugees. But um, right. I am actually, and this is kind of interesting. I am part of a grant um this is amazing with with COVID-19 but there's so many grants out there at the moment right. <laughs> I'm going for like yeah. four or five right now but um there's one that's a grant through uh Institute of Health and they um are looking specifically at meatpacking and uh, fish processing industries mm-hmm and COVID-19 response, and then looking at populations that are working in those industries, but that nobody can talk to or is talking to. Mm. And so if that goes through, we'll be doing um, surveys and questionnaires with, I, I'll be responsible for talking to Congolese meatpacking workers and, and seafood wow. processing workers all over the U.S. Wow. Um, what's been what's been happening. So that would be a really Incredible. cool, I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's a big, it's a big grant that we're putting in, and it's part of a much bigger project on meatpacking and and, and fish processing, but yeah, that makes uh, sense, especially because they were. I mean, there are essential services now. I mean, Trump like rejected the idea of these meat packing plants being closed. No, no. So yeah, yeah, and and um, I think it's in uh, outside of Milwaukee, uh, but all over the U.S., um, you know, they're having these little outbreaks in the meat packing plants, mm-hmm. and it's largely because the plants themselves don't have the hygiene proper for you know. <laughs> It's 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 problematic when it's COVID nineteen, but it's been happening. This isn't a new problem, right? I mean, the problem of you know bad worker conditions and bad hygiene in our meatpacking plants. Angela mm-hmm. Stesi, in fact, do you know Angela Stesi by any chance? I don't. She's an anthropologist. She used to teach in our department here at USF. She's now at okay. UNC Chapel Hill, um, and is a, a great cultural anthropologist. And did a book um, called Scratching Out a Living. It's about poultry workers in, I think, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been really on social media a lot talking about uh, the meat industry and COVID-19. And, mm. I mean, it, and it's just started. <laughs> it's really yeah. just started. So we'll see. Mm. We'll see what happens. It would be interesting. Are you, are, you're not a vegetarian, are you, William? I'm not, no. Meat eater. I used to, I used to, I used to be a vegetarian. I, I'm more than dabbled in vegetarianism, but um, I do eat some meats. But I would have no problem not eating meat. So I think it would be actually really funny if they just had to close all meat processing in the U.S. Yeah, just that's it. Sorry, people. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of vegetarian. Be- <laughs> well, I think it would be the most amazing social experiment to just cut. <laughs> And they would yeah. have, you've got lots of fruits from all over the world imported from Latin America, from South Asia. You've got every grain imaginable, uh-huh. including yeah. ancient grains. And yet people would probably starve if they couldn't eat meat. So, yeah, yeah. We'll see. I mean, that's like the, the majority of like a lot of Americans' diets, like we, we consume so much, like an abundance of protein that we need because we're so meat heavy, meat dependent. Yeah. Well, and the yeah. environmental consequence of that is, is enormous. <laughs> so, yeah. So right. we'll see. 
Anyway, that's that's the other good thing. We'll see. We'll see. The environment has become cleaner mm-hmm. since the beginning of COVID nineteen, and yeah. I think a lot of people are actually saving money. Right. I think about all of these non essential things that are out there shutting down. Well, that's a lot of non essential money that people were spending. <laughs> right. Uh, so you know, we'll see. Yeah, a lot of people are spending time at home. I mean. People are presumably buying still, like getting Postmates or Uber Eats to their homes, but a lot more people are cooking, presumably. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of like non-essential services being used now. Yeah. So we'll see. Anyway. Not being used. Yeah. And um, I guess another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, your book, The Art of Connection. Yeah, um, sure. It came out in 2017. and. um I do have a copy. I just for the first time actually in my grad course this spring. Yeah. Oh, you did? How was that? It was fun. It was good. It was really interesting. Um, the students were nice. Yeah. Yeah. They liked it. They pretended to like it, I guess. Okay. No, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's it's so because uh, part of the book you're talking about like. Uh, the, the new technologies and how they're being used by artisans and, and people dealing in art. And I guess like yeah. what, what, what does that look like? Cause often when pe- we think about like people in other countries, we, we do tend to exoticize them so much, especially in the popular media. Like there's just these sweeping generalizations. And I think a big part of your work as with a lot of anthropological work is like nuancing it. So I don't know if you could talk about some of those juxtapositions in your research. No, absolutely. Um, and in the book, you know, on the one hand, I wanted the the study the book was based on to be very sort of economic and to really be, you know, a interview based, in depth, long, longitudinal, you know, uh, interview based study of Kenya's curio industry. And a lot of the book is historical. I was listed for a while actually as the top new book in East African history on Amazon. Nice. And I thought to myself, I didn't know I wrote a history book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is substantial history, actually, of Kenya's tourism industry, especially yeah. the coast tourism industry, um, and then also significant history of the curio industry and the arts and crafts industry in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And those go hand in hand. They're very interesting and unique. There's a lot of history of the Kenyan economy, the informal economy and market economies and such. So... Um, and the cooperatives industry, that's the other big one is sort of the Kenyan cooperative um, industry, which was a particular component came out of British colonial policy, but the idea of organizing everything around cooperatives and having a ministry of um, cooperatives and social services, you know, the idea being social services are largely provided through hmm. our, our, you know, the, the British maintaining of African cooperation, which they just assumed was there and Africans cooperated. So we're just going to, you know, in classic indirect rule, you know, mode say, you know, who's your chief. All right. You collect the taxes. We're good. Mm. And and they kind of set up cooperatives around a lot of various industries. Um, And initially they were resisted. This is a lot of what I talk about in the book. Um, But at a certain point, people realized that in fact, cooperatives were a really good way at formalization um, and access to markets, access to capital and credit. If, it, if they were done on their own terms, you know, so there's been this sort of debate and contestation over cooperatives. And so a lot of the book, in any case, I was going to say a lot of the book is just economic. But as I've already sort of alluded to with that, it's also very much about representation. 
And so one of the really interesting things I play with in the book is, you know, the idea of, um, well, when I first started the research, one of the big images you would see is a Maasai herder with a cell phone. Yeah. And it was, it was just like a cliche and, uh, and it was like, why, you know, what symbolically is so provocative about this, you know, backwards African tribal person and a cell phone? Because the reality is, and I used to teach it this way, I would say, well, if you look at a tri- you know, a Maasai, they're wearing all these beads, right? Those are all imported beads. Even in the 1700s, mm-hmm. 1800s, they demanded those beads because they controlled all of the passage of the caravans, Right. Why do you, why are they wearing these big cloths that look like Scottish kilts? Because that's what they are, right? They demanded, <laughs> they demanded those as trade goods from the caravans if they were going to cross their land, right? They wow. have big metal spear points. And, you know, so when you look at the, the Maasai, you can say, oh, look, tribal backwards African. But it, that's actually somebody at the center of global trade for hundreds of years. Yeah. So, yeah, of course they're going to have a cell phone. They'd be the first person to have a cell phone. <laughs> so, yeah, that's just a you know a BS comparison, but then you see the image everywhere, right? Um, but so I get into a lot of those kind of things. Um, you know, like what's really interesting about the Kenyan crafts industry is that there really was no wood carving industry in Kenya before the 20th century, and so people would make things out of wood, but there was no tradition anywhere in Kenya really that I know of, or that I, and I've you know read extensive research on this. No tradition of making masks. One of the biggest reasons is there's just not a lot of trees in Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kenya is not real heavily forested. It's a lot of open land. Um, you know, there was a lot of metalworking, a lot of beadworking, a lot of working of things from the coast. Um, but, you know, the kind of big carvings, actually, yeah, the kind of big carvings that you see, like this one, which is so mm. big, I can't even, you know. Yeah. Uh, those only really kind of emerged in the 20th century. And, you know, so the industry itself, while it represents traditional Africa, you know, people go and they buy this stuff because they want some African traditional product or something, you know, it's really not traditional at all. Um, mm. It's actually very modern and it, and it changes, it keeps up with the times. And this is where, you know, I, I, I do a lot of really fun things in the book with like representation and tourism industries. But, you know, one of the issues is, you know, Tourism changes, tourism industries change, and tourists change, mm-hmm. and you know what they're looking for changes, and you know th- there's always this you know dynamic taking place, and so with time, and this has been studied around the world, you know, you, with time you see that tourists don't want to just see things, right? They want to touch things, they want to do things, mm-hmm. and they want adventure, and you know they want to have sex with people, they want to swim with sharks, mm-hmm. they want to go hang gliding, and you know, but and there's a lot of literature on this. Mm-hmm. They want to draw, they want to drink, you know, they want to eat food, they want to consume. And this gets into phenomenology and, you know, phenomenological literature on tourism and movement. And, you yeah. know, and the, the reality is it used to be cool to go and, and see a lion. But when right. you go on safari, when you go on safari, you know, you're like, that lion's kind of far away. And there's like 30 other safari vans. And it kind of looks better at home on your 4K screen. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. then it's, slow-mo and you can see the drool coming out of its mouth so yeah yeah and it's being narrated by uh david attenborough or something (laughs) right so i think i think actually the impact of all of that is that it pushes people you know a little further you know they want to kill a lion you know they want to actually cut its heart out or something right and um and that's and that's 
happening on, on the coast of Kenya. And, and you can see those changes both in the structure of the industry uh, and also in the art itself. And right. so the art changes. And so, you know, I have a, a, some really cool data. Maybe the, the best stuff is on, you know, what, what's, what doesn't sell anymore? You know, what mm. does, why people buy certain things? Yeah. Um, you know, so you have a rise of sex tourism in Kenya and you start to see all of these heavily sexualized images being sold, right? Mm. You see a rise in um, one of the things that happened sort of through the 90s. You see a rise in poverty around the tourism industry. So you can't be a tourist in Kenya and not be confronted by abject poverty anymore. Yeah. So you see a huge increase in the amount of stuff sold to tourists as profiting or you know helping kids with polio, helping single mothers, helping, um, you know, or just fair trade. Um, and, and so you, you really see that change. And I have a great quote from a guy who says, you know, tourists, they don't want, they don't want those tribal images anymore because they know that we're not tribal people because they see us and, you know, they don't, um, you know, he, what does he say? They don't want those, the animals anymore because they already own the full collection. And, wow. you know, what they, he said what they want now are, um, things made of garbage or recycled goods. That's mm. what they really want. And that's so interesting to me because it shows how people are thinking about Africa differently, yeah. right? So maybe maybe Africa is not full of, or Kenya is not full of, you know, animals and tribal people. You know, I've been to you know, Kenya. I saw it and went to a nightclub and went down the road. I saw the poverty and, you know, boy, I, so, you know, if you're going to buy something, you want to buy something that's, that's sort of helping. But at right. the same time, right, Africa is still being produced and sold, it's, except instead of being uh, undeveloped and tribal, it's being sold as, you know, in, in need of help, full of garbage, right. In uh, need of cycling or something like that. No, you know, right. it ignores the fact that a lot of the garbage in Kenya is brought there from India and from other countries and dumped there. <laughs> but mm. you know, it's, it's, um, and actually Kenya doesn't really have much of a garbage problem compared to much of the rest of the world. They're way ahead. Yeah. They, they banned plastic bags years ago in Kenya. There's no plastic bags in Kenya. It's incredible. Wow. Um, in fact, if you fly to Kenya through Europe and you buy something in the airport, they'll check your boarding pass and make sure if you're flying to Kenya, they won't give you a plastic bag. Oh. Even in the airport. Interesting. Um, because it's illegal to bring them into the country. No. So, I mean, so, no. yeah, no, it's, it's funny. But so Kenya's way ahead on a lot of, you know, these kind of things. And so, so, but in any case, you know, again, you have this, um, you know, what is sold through the tourism industry is really complicated. And so, you know, it's, and it's changing all the time. Um, you also have, I toy with the idea of Afropolitanism. And this mm -hmm. is a, you know, term that's like 10 or 15 years old. It's kind of like an African, Pan-Africanism, um, mm -hmm. you know, African cosmopolitanism. Um, mm -hmm. It's been critiqued a lot. It's, it's generally thought of as being very global, uh, multiracial, um, but also very like sort of upper class. And... Mm -hmm. Um, it's very, it's kind of very Black Panther, Wakanda. Um, yeah. And, and so it's often also seen as being very alienating to a lot of Africans that are right. the majority of people, but it's also very important in terms of representing Africa as being ahead and being modern and being, you know, connected. And, and in reality, it's a product of the hundreds of thousands of Africans who are modern global citizens all over the world and still have mm -hmm. these very strong ties you know, 
and moved back and forth between Accra and Lagos and Nairobi and Johannesburg. And, um, and so actually, if you want to look, I mean, Afropolitanism is its whole thing. But I speak yeah. to that in the beginning of my book because, you know, a lot of the stuff that's produced now in the Kenyan tourism industry isn't just produced for um, for white people. And, and in fact, this was this was one of the coolest things I saw when I was in Kenya. When I first started going there, it was at the t- a time of, uh, you know, complete, there was no tourism. So the embassy was bombed in 98 and 2001 was 9-11, 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq. So there was like no tourism. It was a great time to be there because people didn't really just assume I was a tourist. I was, a, I was young, I had hair. So they were just yeah. like, who are you? Um, <laughs> and during that time period, the way that the tourism industry made it was by opening their doors to Kenyans. And up until that time, really, their, Kenyans did not feel like they had any access to the tourism industry as tourists. And the tourism industry had no interest in enticing Kenyans. And that meant going on safari, but it also just meant like they had like international nightclubs all over Kenya that were for international tourists. You know, yeah. what do you do when <laughs> there are no tourists? Hmm. Um, and so it was really interesting to be a part of that kind of like that move of Kenyans into like and, and taking over the industry. So I talk about that a lot in, um, in my books. So for the last 10 years, at least, if not 15 years, Kenyans have been the biggest demographic of tourists in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really big deal. And it's been a really big change. And it really changes the yeah. industry, right? Because you're not selling stuff to Germans. And I mean, you know, so if I used to work with people who like had little shops in the hotels, really nice hotels, yeah. you know, you got glass, you know, glass uh, shelves and a little cash register and a shop in a hotel in Kenya, though. And, you know, you're selling stuff to white tourists. And if they're Germans and Italians and Americans, right? Um, but if half the people staying at that hotel are Kenyans, Right. You're going to sell, you got to sell very different things. Yeah. Completely Uh, different. You're not selling an image anymore. It's like, yeah. So it's presumably people who aren't going to buy into it. Yeah. So what what I see is this kind of Afropolitan aesthetic emerging out of that. And, and there are, so there there are a lot of things that Kenyans do buy. Right. And so, you know, um, but they don't want, you know, they don't want an image of a Maasai warrior. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. jewelry a lot of the jewelry it's a lot of jewelry fabric clothing um shoes you know a lot of that stuff i mean and tourists buy the same stuff um Mm -hmm. and they'll buy i have a great quote from a guy who says you know the tourists will look at what the kenyan tourists buy and then if they want to buy what the kenyan tourists buy (laughs) that's like being kenyan oh god yeah so fascinating (laughs) You know, because it, it, but really, it's like in '95. If you went to Kenya as a tourist, you would feel eh, it's nice. I'm spending all my time in this, you know, hotel. The only Kenyans I meet, though, are the people who work here. Hmm. And now, if you go as a tourist to Kenya, like you're going to be surrounded by some really rich Africans. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it's actually, and I, I mean, it, it'd be worthy of study. I, I talk about it a little bit. But, you know, Kenya used to be one of these like really cheap places for like a German truck driver to yeah. go as a tourist and he could pick up a girl and have a great time. Yeah. But it's really different when you're when that German truck driver is now surrounded in his tourist venue by these very upper class African families. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It's super cool. It's super yeah, cool. It's super cool. I, um, it, it'd, it'd be, are you, is that something you're interested in doing like next for research? You know, 
it's, I mean, I, I, I discuss it in the book. Um, right now, tourism in Kenya is dead. Uh, I think that one thing I could do if I wanted to would be to do a quick article on the impact of COVID on basically my research participants. I could probably call them all up and do quick interviews with them and just see what's happened. I just, you know, it would probably be a similar story to what you're finding in a lot of the U.S., though, which is that, yeah, COVID is what had the impact, but the groundwork for the collapse was set before then, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, the, like, so uh, one of my really best friends in Kenya, I mean, he hasn't, even before COVID, he had lost his job. Mm-hmm. You know, so now, now with COVID, it's like not that different for him. <laughs> right. Wow. It's a little more insecure, but hey, you know. Yeah. So we'll see. So is that, what, do, how do you, I guess overall, both in Kenya and in the U.S., I guess around the world, um, do you think COVID sort of just took, I guess it's just another layer of vulnerability people are already experiencing? Because I know that you said that you have an interest and I know in your research, having taken your classes as well, you have an interest in like economic anthropology. I guess what's your perspective on that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly, I mean, that's a good way to put it is that it's another layer of vulnerability, you know, vulnerability, but, um, people were already, I mean, and that gets back to my earlier statement on risk. The risk management Mm -hmm. (laughs) has been passed from government to corporation and those corporations are the ones fighting the hardest to take control of the government. So I wouldn't call it neoliberalism. It's actually neo-fascism, but, Mm. uh, just like by definition, I'm not sure why nobody calls it neo-fascism, but, um, and it, especially because it's being sold to people as, through white nationalism, right? So it's like, so right. it's, it's exactly what, what it is. Um, but I do think that that's, that's what's happened. I mean, so, so you, we've seen years of, um, and this is where I, I would say it's not really neoliberalism, because it's not that the state has just withdrawn. Um, the state, in fact, is completely beholden to the financial industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the healthcare industry. Um, It's just that they decide carefully who is worth taking care of, you know? Um, And, and, you know, so we can bail out those industries when they aren't able to help rich people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I mean, you can't call that neoliberalism. These are massive government bailouts, you know, so, so who's getting bailed out and not is really the question. And, you know, is government taking care of people isn't really the question because government is bailing people out left and right these days. I just actually read that the GOP senators are, um, I'm sorry, the representatives are meeting to just come up with a big fat list of stuff that they want out of the next, you know, the next stimulus. I mean, they're playing with money that doesn't exist. And they're having yeah. a great time. They're not fiscal conservatives. <laughs> I mean, these yeah. are big spending people. So that's yeah. why I mean, this is this is a you know corporate state collusion um, on on amazing scales. So I, I think from an economic standpoint, it's exactly just this you know passing of or uh, you know, another layer of vulnerability, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's sold to people through you know personal freedom and personal responsibility and, and that kind of thing. But when it comes down to it, I mean, it's the, the hypocrisy in all of it is, is like absolutely mind blowing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, what I mean by that is when you look at the actual politicians and what they, how they are acting. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, so we'll see. So we'll see. I, I, I do think that the, 
one of the big questions that will be economic, you know, when you talk mm-hmm. about economic anthropology, I've read a lot of, I read the Jacobin a lot, who I really disagree with a lot, but that's sort of a very leftist uh, Marxist publication. Um, you know, some of them think that we have an entire new economic world system coming because this is the end of capitalism as we know it. And I am not so optimistic. <laughs> However, I, I, I do think that there are going to be some absolutely massive changes because, you know, I think some of it is going to have to start in a state like Florida with putting Rick Scott in jail. You know, yeah. I mean, we need to have a bill passed where if you're elected to do a job and you purposefully do the job badly, huh. right? Because yeah. you want to make that system not work, you should go to jail for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I've heard other politicians say this. I've heard lots of people say this. I'm not making any personal attack, but it's it's obvious he has admitted and the current governor has admitted that the man was elected and paid to do a job that he purposefully did badly so that it wouldn't work. Mm. You know, and, and until we start, you know, holding those people accountable, I mean, right. and but I think it's close. I think that we're going to get there. You know, I'm, I'm optimistic that first responders who may have been supporting the president are realizing that he doesn't care at all about their health <laughs> or well-being. Right. Um, I think that older folks, you know, older people who are only valuable for their votes, the president and his party should care a lot more about them. Um, yeah. And I think they're probably seeing that they're seen as expendable. Um, yeah. you know, so it's, it's a really interesting time where, as with any fascist government, it's just a very clear delineation between who's expendable and who's not. Um, but I think that once people realize that that's what's going on, Mm -hmm. Um, you know i i think that you know i I do think there's another big economic i mean i hate to go off on this but i I, the stock market has been radically over overvalued for about two or three years Mm -hmm. um it's it's amazing not just the drop right that just happened but then the climb back Mm -hmm. and you if you (laughs) If you read anything, and I usually don't agree with them, but if you read anything that all the top investors, Jamie Dimon, uh, Warren Buffett, <laughs> they're all like, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so what's happening right now is fascinating because it's small scale investment people mm-hmm. who are selling their clients on, you got to put your money in this. You got to buy, you got to buy. Um, hmm. And, you know, they're getting a lot of the small scale people to do that like everyday people. Uh, I, I still think that there's going to be a big, big, big collapse because the economy as we knew it cannot come back um, Mm -hmm. until things like movie theaters reopen and, you know, all that stuff goes back to normal. Um, And the government just, you know, a a bankrupt government just gave away huge amounts of money. Yeah. uh, Much of which when we trace it, I think is going to end up overseas. Right. So there's a huge amount of that stimulus money that got eaten up by companies that are just going to bank it and put it overseas. So, hmm. yeah, I think we're in trouble. But yeah. um, I, I, I feel like until we hit real mass evictions, you know, um, 
real like I think it's gonna ha- it may have to get real bad, but it could it could get bad real real fast. Wow. You know, like I I was just going by the university mall the other day, and there were about like five cars parked, and they were camp people were living out of their cars. Wow. And they, you know they had laundry lines set up and stuff. And and wow. And trust me, I mean my partner's lucky she lives with me. Uh, you know, we'll get through this, but she's been out of work for six weeks with no unemployment, mm-hmm. you know, and that's most of the people in Florida who have applied for unemployment. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that the, uh, there's going to be, and, and yeah, there's going to be a, there's going to be something, some big things happening. That uh, is incredible. I did not know that there are line, like out in front of university mall like that, that, yeah, yeah I mean, people, and we'll start yeah. to yeah. Um, there's a, a, we'll see, and and again, I mean the the media, the mainstream media isn't covering most of this. Although you know NPR has done a pretty good job. Um, I think there's a lot of things that our local political leaders could be doing, but they're also just like trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Right. Um, yeah. So we'll see. I think uh, you know we're yeah. lucky. I'm lucky. Yeah. We'll yeah. Definitely. And the other thing is like recently Trump, uh, President Trump admonished uh, Fauci, the, you know, like sort of on the, in terms of the media, in terms of press conferences, he's like the head of public health, at least in the, the vision of the public. And mm-hmm. at this point, there's been this big falling out and it's been pegged in the media as like science versus like politics or even then Trumpism versus science. And I guess there's this big effort to see like these distinctions between how like science is saying one thing and politics is sort of saying another thing, which is gets into the issue of like why Trump wants to open the economy and all that. I guess, what do you think about those kinds of like distinctions? Yeah, You know, I think obviously, I mean, binaries are always problematic, Um, but I do think that, I mean, I have a much more complicated way to explain it, but I don't think that's a bad way to explain it. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I do think that what happened is in the early days, Trump would not think of um, risking an economic shutdown Mm -hmm. like what was happening in Wuhan. Mm. Uh, And I think he really just didn't take it seriously and he thought this was nonsense. Right. The U.S. government only took any action when Tom Hanks got sick. <laughs> right. And that there were a lot of famous rich people that got sick. All of a sudden, the U.S. went into to lockdown. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's become clearer now. You know, NBA teams, professional athletes, they have access to their health care. People are in their groove now. We've got it kind of figured out if you're rich. You know, who's dying, you know, black, brown people, uh, poor people, old people who are poor. I mean, so so I think very it's very easy to say, oh, well, let's let's open it back up. And Mm -hmm. now the fundamental calculation that isn't because he wants to kill off those people. You know, I mean, the fundamental calculation is there's no way in hell Trump wins the election (laughs) Mm -hmm. if the economy is in destruction. Right. And, you know, I mean, I, I, the, you know, I know that there are anti-Trump people. The last thing they want to see happen is everything comes back and it's booming in November because mm-hmm. then it makes, whether it's because of him or not, you know, he'll take credit for it. 
Right. Um, and even if the economy has crashed in November, he's still going to say it's great and take credit for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if it's politics and economy. It's also a lot of perception and reality. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's all constructed. Um, you know, I, I, I think it is even, it's much easier in this case to just be specific and say, look, what's happening is he needs the economy to be good, to be reelected. Um, I do see this as shaping up to be a huge backfire. Right. Um, I think that what's going to happen is that the heartland Trump country is going to see the worst of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's just what the scientific models say. Uh, and you know, it'll be interesting. Are they going to blame it? You know, that's why they're setting this up to blame it all on China. Right. Mm-hmm. So when, when half of Kentucky gets sick, it's not Trump's fault for saying it's not real. It's, you know, it, it started in a, in a lab in Wuhan or something. Uh, yeah. you know, there's an interesting blame game. Um, what's, what's maybe most fascinating about the Trump campaign right now is, you know, people say that they, they give mixed messaging or that they, they'll contradict themselves, mm-hmm. but they know exactly what they're doing. They do that on purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'll, you know, they want to be right in 10 days. So they'll tell you five yeah. things because they know at least one of those five things will be right. Uh-huh. You know, they, they want to say they have six different plans because at least one of those plans might be viable in, you know, 20 days, even if they all contradict each other today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just takes one talking point. And it, it's very interesting because, you know, there was a time when people said in like anthro media, Mm-hmm. that, you know, we're in a new democratized time because people can see everything. And so, you know, you can't contradict yourself because you're on film. <laughs> but what they've realized is that people don't watch more than 10 seconds of something. Yeah. Soundbite. <laughs> it doesn't matter if there's contradictory evidence. <laughs> right. So they're just uh, running. So at the same time, you know, and I don't know if you, if you have thoughts on this, please let me know. Cause now I just feel like I'm, I'm telling you what I've been thinking for the last six weeks, but yeah, <laughs> crazy thoughts of quarantine. But um, but I, you know, I, I come from sort of rural New Hampshire, not sort of. I, you know, I come from rural New Hampshire, and I know people, and I'm still friends with people on on Facebook that are that are kind of rural New Hampshire folk, and they're not dumb. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of the there's a culture, and, and there's also a culture there of of social media and i think we hear about that but we hear about it often in terms of like you know real extreme racism or you know and this and and the people i know don't share any of that stuff but it's still very right wing Mm -hmm. and it's very uh it's it's much more framed around like government and freedoms and yeah identity politics around like being an independent rural american with my truck and my boat and my fishing poles and my hunting guns and everything I need to be ready to get through the walking dead. And mm, mm-hmm. so it's, it's this very interesting. So then those people are all over social media now. Right. And their presence is fascinating. And the memes that they share are really fascinating. And there's this bigger, there's without a question, I think a bigger cultural, you know, differentiation between like, this is an urban problem. It's a, you know, a, a brown and black people's problem, but it's also just, you know, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an urban problem, right? Mm-hmm. People, people who are dumb enough to live in cities <laughs> and they just move there for the handouts. <laughs> mm, yeah. 
that's that's actually maybe the most fascinating thing to me because it's so absolutely wrong you know like the people in rural america with their big trucks i mean that's all subsidized by money made by people working in cities <laughs> like the flow of money in america from new york and california to the red states is just insane yeah you follow the money and yet it's understood wow. is the exact opposite and then it gets this identity politics tacked onto it and this you know bizarre i mean it's it's extreme superiority that I would say comes out of extreme white identity crisis and masculinity yeah. crisis. Right. And, and, and it's just amazing to see how many people though have found this new sense of pride in Trump's America during coronavirus because mm-hmm. they have their gun in their truck and they're mm-hmm. in rural America and screw you. And it's like, and, and that's, I think we see a lot of that come through these protests, like these guys yeah. again. And, um, man, so we're yeah, in, it's like a security blanket, but it's, but that's, there's a whole culture out there that I think should be studied. I mean, that would be something that would be a project. Yeah. And it's funny to hear you say like what the reality is, right? Like, again, you said earlier, the binaries are problematic and, when you have this belief that those rural or for those urban people, like there's this big barrier that you imagine, even though the economy is showing that it's all together and you're not, you know, it's all one thing. Right. I think that's the, one of the interesting things is how, you know, it's just, Oh, it's, it's completely interconnected and it's total BS and, and you know, the construction, but like, for example, like I heard somebody recently said something online, like, I got to drive into the city tomorrow for a doctor's appointment. I'm bringing my gun. <laughs> and it was meant to be a joke, you know, uh-huh. was, but, but, but I think he, I mean, I think he was going to bring his gun though. Yeah. But, 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 it, it, you know, but the, the, the frame of humor is if you go to the city, watch out. Yeah. It's going to be really dangerous. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the evidence shows that most shootings in the U S take place in the suburbs, not in cities, you know, mm. <laughs> but, wow. but, but, but it's amazing, you know? So anyway, I, I, I see that being a fascinating American dynamic being really, really accentuated during COVID, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that there are a lot of things like that, that, uh, that we'll see happening that are, yeah. they're really interesting. Like, have you seen, I watched, um, ah, uh, Bowling for Columbine, not too long ago. Do you know Bowling for Columbine? It's a Michael Moore documentary from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he just, he looks kind of like a gun, you know, American's fascination with guns, but it's right. like, it's so true today. Uh, and, you know, just the idea that, you know, gun shops, of course, have been essential businesses through all of this. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. That's crazy. You know, gun sales in the U.S. have gone through the roof, through all of Yeah. This. Yeah. Even in California, they stopped for a while, but then they opened it back up. Uh, so anyway, yeah, yeah, California. You know, California could see some political changes from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are you, you're not in California. Are you in California? I'm not. I'm in, I'm in Florida, but yeah, my family's still in California. Yeah, so I um, still I'm hearing stuff from over there. Boy, yeah. and there's are they everybody still on lockdown where you're from, or are they? Yeah, I mean. I think for the most part, like, yeah, my family's being careful. Like the thing that they were telling me, which is seems so different is that like when people come out and they don't have a mask, like 
I guess people can kind of freak out a little bit more than they do here, where I think maybe half the people here may, might not even be wearing a mask. And, you know, yeah, I've heard that too, actually, even in New Hampshire, my mother was saying everybody wears a mask. Yeah. Every single person. So, yeah. yeah nobody, I was like very few masks in Tampa. No. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah. Well, yeah, man. Don't, Thank you so much. Any other I thing? really yeah. appreciate yeah. being able to talk to you. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to end with in terms of your research this upcoming year. I know it's going to be all different. I think I touched on the main things. Actually, well, speaking of California, I think it's the Cal State system just announced that they're going online in the fall. They are. And, um, I think uh, I have, let's just say, heard through the grapevine that that is a very good sign that there's going to be, I mean, everybody's going to do that. Yeah. And no, cause a, nobody wants to take the chance and, and I'll, and I'll tell you the scary, this is, I'll, I hate to end on a scary note. <laughs> I'll, I'll end on the optimistic note of it will be interesting. But before I end on that note, I would <laughs> say what, what, what really does scare me is um, like, so at USF, we're going to be okay. You know, we're a big state institution. They've even got some internal funding right now for COVID we're hiring, I think in our department, and, you know, the way that the funding model works for USF isn't great. We can talk about neoliberalism in the academy, but, you know, it's a it's a big state institution, um, research, you know, university, and it'll come down to the state funding, right? Now, mm -hmm. the small liberal arts colleges, the small private schools mm -hmm. who are you know, charging 45,000 a year for tuition. And what you get is yes, a good education, but also an experience. Yeah. And you know, that's an experience that people are, you know, paying for and they think is worth it. And, mm -hmm. but what happens if, <laughs> I mean, who is going to pay 40 grand a year to go to a really, you know, I, I hate to, you know, let's Bryn Mawr or, Oberlin or, you know, all of these, like there's thousands in the U S of these really top notch little liberal arts schools. Who's going to pay that much money to go to those schools online? Yeah. You know, so who, true. who's going to move there? Um, and I know a lot of those schools were already in trouble financially. That's the reason that the tuition is so high. Um, a lot of that's because they've invested poorly in sports and other things that, you know, are mm -hmm. unrelated to academics. But I, I have heard from colleagues of mine up north where there's a lot more of those schools, like in New England, um, schools are now starting to get massive numbers of students saying they're not, they're taking a year off. Mm. So large percentages are staying. Um, and if, and this is before anybody's announced that they're going online. Um, huh. And so if, so that's going to be a question. Now, some yeah. of those schools may have to say, look, we're a small, isolated community. Um, they're safer here than anywhere else. And we're just going to, you know, have a special time on campus and we'll deal with it as a campus. Right. You better have your lawyers and your doctors ready. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to do that. So I, I really fear for academia. Mm -hmm. And yes, the state budget cuts are going to be really rough. And that's what we've heard about. I know Arizona, Wisconsin, um, I just heard the University of Akron is having several like colleges cut. I mean, so 
certain mm-hmm. schools are already being attacked by their state governments. But in those cases, it seems a little bit like that was waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, COVID is sort of an excuse. You know, the, the state government of Florida has been very supportive of, of our system. We have one of the best state systems in the country. And, uh, you know, I, I'd i be very surprised if they they went after us. I am worried about systemically the impact of thousands of small colleges going under. Wow. Um, and it could even be that we get a huge influx of online students. I know, you know, Southern New Hampshire University, which is from right where I'm from, like 10 minutes down the road. They're one of the biggest online providers, and they're now offering all these online classes for free or for 50% off. Wow. And in reality, they're just cutting right into, they're stealing students mm-hmm. from all of these other colleges. And yeah. It could be, you know, really exposing the problem economically with the way that the system was set up, you know? But, yeah. Uh, I, I just, I worry because, I mean, the impact it would have on the job market, right? If a bunch of anthropology departments close. Mm-hmm. I mean, the job market's already awful, and now you're going to have all of these, you know, senior, really experienced people with no jobs. And wow. So I'm not trying to get all down and dark, but I that would I, I'll leave you. <laughs> that, that's one of my last thoughts. That's and it's just something to watch. I think through the summer, um, it'll be really interesting to watch and see what happens around the country with ha- higher education. And yeah. You know, we're not protected, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, a lot of Republican administrations would love to just destroy higher education. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they have some time to do it and it could be brought back. I mean, it has to be brought back for the future of the country. But, you know, obviously, if you bring something back five years later after you kill it, you know, it's it's not going to (laughs) be it's not going to be the same. So. That's what we're dealing with. With refugee resettlement, we're already in that situation. You know, four or five wow. years ago, four or five years ago, we were resettling over 120,000 people in the U.S. And yeah. actually, I'd, I'd have to check that. I'd have to see. It was up in the up, up towards 100,000 there, the late Obama years. And you know, we're down to we were down to about 20,000, and now we're down to zero. And mm-hmm. it's not just the number of people coming to the U.S., but the number of people who were employed, working doing the resettlement, you know, it's a whole industry that's gone now. So if they decide, oh, we're going to start resettling those refugees again, who's going to do it? Wow. Yeah. All those organizations that took decades to develop are gone. Yeah. (laughs) And they're dying right now. (laughs) So that's really um, crazy. So that's what we could see with a lot of the education system, I'm afraid, but, but we'll see. And, and I'll leave you, this is my optimistic note. Uh, It will be interesting. <laughs> it will yeah, be. It will. There's no way for yeah. it not to be. So, anyway, take care. Stay safe. Yeah, thanks.